Now he dies, and his son, Rehoboam, comes to the throne. And we are told here, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel were come to Shechem, to make him king. And it came to pass, when Jeroboam the son of Nebat, who was yet in Egypt, heard of it, for he was fled from the presence of King Solomon, and Jeroboam dwelt in Egypt, that they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the congregation of Israel came and spake unto Rehoboam, saying, Now, what they're asking is for the taxes to be lowered. Listen to this. Thy father made our yoke grievous. Now, therefore, make thou the grievous service of thy father and his heavy yoke, which he put upon us, lighter, and we will serve thee. And he said unto them, Depart yet for three days, then come again to me, and the people departed. Now, what they're asking is for reduction of taxes. Now, Solomon had carried on a tremendous building program, and that cost a great deal, by the way. We hear today so much about government costing so much. Well, if you want to know why it costs so much, go to the capital of any state or the county seat of any county or any city and go to the civic center or go to our capital in Washington and you'll see why our taxes are like they are. May I say to you today, believe me, government is a fat cat. They really are spending money and putting up buildings. Now, that requires increased taxation. And this is something that always is going to cause trouble. And our problem is a problem, actually, of taxation. Government is costing, of course, too much. We are seeing the increase in buildings to house more committees, more workers, and before long, there'll probably be more people working for government that's working for the rest of the world put together. This is the movement today. Well, it was that problem in the day of Solomon. He kept building, and he had to increase taxes. Now, we find here that Rehoboam is being asked to reduce them. And boy, here was an opportunity for this young ruler to move in and make himself popular by reducing taxes. He would have had the people following him if he had only had done that. Where is the man today that has the nerve to be elected to office and go in and fire about half of the government workers? And they ought to be, I think. If he did that and cut down taxes, he'd make himself popular. But they're afraid to. You see, they're afraid to take that first step. Now, what happens? Well, he calls a meeting here of his wise men, only they were very unwise. And King Rehoboam consulted with the old man that stood before Solomon his father while he yet lived and said, How do ye advise that I may answer this people? Now, he first, of course, turns to really the wise men in the kingdom, the older man. And they spoke unto him, saying, If thou wilt be a servant unto this people this day, and will serve them, and answer them, and speak good words to them, then they'll be thy servants forever. Now, this was good advice, you see. But he forsook the counsel of the old man, which they had given him, and consulted with the young man that were grown up with him, and which stood before him. And he said unto them, What counsel give ye that we may answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, Make the yoke which thy father did put upon us lighter. And the young men that were grown up with him spake unto him, saying, Thus shalt thou speak unto this people that spoke unto thee, saying, Thy father made our yoke heavy, but make thou it lighter unto us. Thus shalt thou say unto them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's loin. In other words, he's going to make it worse. And now, whereas my father did lade you with a heavy yoke, I'll add to your yoke. My father has chastised you with whips, but I'll chastise you with scorpions. In other words, this man said, 
Instead of decreasing taxes, I intend to increase them. Instead of being less severe, I intend to be more severe. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king had appointed, saying, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people roughly, and forsook the old man's counsel that they gave him, and spake to them after the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, and I'll add to your yoke. My father also chastised you with whips, and I'll chastise you with scorpions. Wherefore the king hearkened not unto the people, for the cause was from the Lord, that he might perform his saying, which the Lord spake by Ahijah the Shelonite unto Jeroboam the son of Nebat. So when all Israel saw that the king hearkened not unto them, the people answered the king, saying, What portion have we in David? Neither have we inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, now see to thine own house, David. So Israel departed unto their tents. Now this is rebellion. This is the splitting up of the kingdom. And it will eventuate, of course, in civil war. Now we are told here, Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was over the tribute. And all Israel stoned him with stones that he died. That's the way they got rid of the tax collector. Therefore, King Rehoboam made speed to get him up to his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. Now, notice this. So Israel rebelled against the house of David unto this day. That is, under the time First Kings was written. And it is a rebellion that continued on until they returned from the Babylonian captivity. And, of course, all the tribes returned at that particular time. Now, we are told that Rehoboam has made a very unwise decision. And what happens, it has enabled Jeroboam to take the ten northern tribes and build a northern kingdom. We are told then Jeroboam built Shechem in Mount Ephraim and dwelt therein and went out from thence and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. Now the thing that he did was this. He put a calf in Bethel, or Bethel, as it's probably better called, and also in Samaria. He put there two golden calves for the people to worship, so that they would not go to Jerusalem in order to worship there. Now, this now marks the division of the kingdom in the northern and into the southern kingdoms. Now we're going to follow the divided kingdom, and you will find the method here in First and Second Kings will be to give Israel and then Judah and then Judah and then Israel and back and forth, and we'll be looking at both kingdoms as we go along. We'll follow the kingdom of Judah. It will last longer than the kingdom of Israel, and we'll follow through in both of these. And I want to pause to just say this to you. If you do not have the notes and outlines on First and Second Kings, this is the one book that you'll find them helpful. I have here a chronological table of the kings of the divided kingdom. And you will see which ones are contemporary. That is, that were ruling at the same particular time. And it will enable you to also see the prophets that prophesied during this period. In fact, practically all the prophets, except the post-captivity prophets, prophesied during this period here. This chart will be invaluable to you. And I do want to urge you to write in and get the notes and outlines. And in it, we have an entire page given over to this chart. And it's one that you'll need to follow through because it becomes a little complicated through this particular section. Now, that brings us now to the end of chapter 12. Rehoboam is the king now of the southern kingdom, that following in the Davidic line. And we find Jeroboam is the king in the northern kingdom. He has now been elevated to that position and he introduces idolatry into the north, 
with the two golden calves. And we find now the division and actually civil war will break out and will continue until the northern kingdom goes into captivity. Then we find the southern kingdom going also into captivity. This is a very sad period in the life of the nation, and it contains for us today many great lessons, and I think many lessons that, frankly, government needs to have today. Until next time, friends, may God richly bless you. Now, friends, we come today to the division of the kingdom under Jeroboam, who led in a rebellion and took the ten northern tribes, and that formed the kingdom of Israel. And Rehoboam, a man that certainly did not have the wisdom or the diplomacy of his father Solomon, and he was really responsible for the splitting of the kingdom. Now, I want to say that in our notes, and this is the reason you should have a copy, we have a chronological table of the kings of the divided kingdom. We have Judah on one side, the line of David as it goes down, and we have the dates, the best they can be ascertained, number of years that each king reigned. And then on the other side, we have Israel and the kings that reigned in Israel. And they're followed down to the time of the captivity. The northern kingdom went into captivity in Assyria, and the southern kingdom went in captivity to Babylon. Now, there can be a great deal of confusion as you go through this section, and king after king, and you wonder whether this king is king of the northern or the southern kingdom, whether he's good or bad. Well, our chart will show that, and it will show whether he's good or bad. When I was a freshman in college, they had a Bible course that was very puerile, to tell the truth. It was a weak cup of tea. But there were certain questions that were always asked from time immemorial. One of the questions was, name the kings of Israel and Judah, and briefly describe the reign of each. Well, some freshman in the years gone by made a profound discovery. He found out that if you just memorize the kings and write after each one of them a bad king, that you would make 95%. And what freshman would want to make more than that? So that's all they did. Now, you're going to find that in the northern kingdom... Every king was bad. There wasn't a good one in the lot. In the southern kingdom, you have a few that could be labeled good. I would say that there were probably a half a dozen kings in the southern kingdom over that 200-year period that could be called good kings. The rest of them were bad kings. Now, this is a dark blot in the history of this nation. But it could be, I think, said also in the reign of other kings in other lands. By the way, if you wanted to bring it home, how many good presidents have we really had? Oh, I know if you're a Democrat, you know who you think is a good president. And if you're a Republican, you know who you think. I'm of the opinion that history has to record that we didn't do so well either, by the way. We've had probably a little better percentage, but our batting average hasn't been too good. So that the thing, though, that makes this so dark is these people had light from heaven. They had a revelation from God, and their responsibility was different. And also, I feel like the responsibility of our nation is greater than the responsibility of another nation because we've had, in a particular way, more light from heaven than many other nations have had. And yet we've had this very black spot in our political life. Now, we give this as a background, and I think that I'd like to take a backward look 
at Solomon again for just a moment to see why the kingdom was rent. Because why would a wise man become a fool as he became? And that's exactly what happened. Here is a man given a special dispensation of wisdom from God to administer the kingdom. But that wisdom did not apparently enter into his own personal life. It was not spiritual wisdom or spiritual discernment, because Solomon obviously did not have that. But he had certain basic principles and certain basic concepts that enabled him to be a very wise ruler. But it didn't enter into his own private, personal life, and certainly not his spiritual life. And you begin to see that very early in this man's life, that we notice that he never really broke with false religion. You'll remember at the very beginning when he came to the throne that there was idolatry, and he rather closed his eyes to it. He took no particular definite positive stand relative to that. And then you find here that he began to engage in that which was the mark of prosperity. He sent ships out to bring back apes and peacocks. And after all, a man that's called of God to witness for God and live for God and to glorify God, there's nothing particularly wrong with apes and peacocks. But it is wrong if you've been called to glorify God. That is the thing in this man. And you find that there's a definite weakness in this man, Solomon. Now, the book of Proverbs reveal the wisdom of Solomon, but the book of Ecclesiastes reveals the foolishness of Solomon. You will not find any failure of this man or of his father David in the book of Chronicles. And I think probably I ought to run ahead and just say this. The book of Chronicles, the two books, cover the same ground as we have here. With this difference, here you have man's viewpoint. You have the history given, while over in the book of Chronicles, you have it from God's viewpoint. Now, God forgave David. And when God forgave him, why, he blotted out his sin. And from God's viewpoint, it's not mentioned in Chronicles, but God put it in the book of Kings for man to see it. And God forgave Solomon, and his failure, likewise, is not recorded. And we began to see the weakness of that man. He began to multiply wives. God never went along with polygamy, that is, many wives. God never approved it. God condemned it. God said that his wrath was against him. And the very interesting thing is that always immorality and false religion go together. John made it very clear for the Christian. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie. Don't kid yourself. You can't live in sin and serve God and have fellowship with him. Now, you can fool the people round about you. And unfortunately, we've got Christian leaders today that live in sin. They have had problems that relate to morality, and they have been proven immoral. And yet people go ahead and support them. I've never quite understood why they do it. But the very interesting thing is that this is something that they're not fooling God about, and they're not having fellowship with him. Now, we find here that this man, Solomon, is a man that I feel was a great failure. I think that probably there are two men in the Scripture that had tremendous potential, tremendous opportunity. One was Samson, and the other was Solomon. And both of these men failed God at that particular time. And it was one of those things that is indeed tragic. Now, this man, Solomon, and I think probably ought to put an epitaph over him because of the fact that he was a failure, we find in Ecclesiastes 2.17 this language, Therefore I hated life, because the work 
that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me, for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. And the glory of Solomon was a passing glory. And our Lord could say that that little flower on the side of the road that you passed unnoticed, that Solomon in all his glory is not arrayed like that little flower is. And I say to you, the passing glory of this world today. I felt like that I ought to more or less preach Solomon's funeral service at this particular time because now we are seeing a kingdom rent, and it's rent because of the sin of this man. We're prepared now to get into the 13th chapter, and we're going to move rather rapidly through this section here, and I think you can understand why, that it's history. We'll be following two kingdoms, one right after the other, and together, and you'll see an overlapping. Now, we find that this man, Jeroboam, who came to the throne in the northern kingdom, that he was given an opportunity to really serve God. He was afraid that the tribes in the north would go back to Jerusalem to worship, and if they did, it would unite the kingdom, and he wanted to make it separate. So he set up two golden calves. And he put one in Samaria, and he put one in Bethel. Now will you notice chapter 13, and I'm reading it, verse 1. And behold, there came a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord unto Bethel, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. Now this is a prophet of God. And he cried against the altar in the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord, Behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name. And upon thee shall he offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon thee, and men's bones shall be burnt upon thee. Now, let me just pause a moment that if you have now our notes and outlines, You'll go down and you'll want to see when did Josiah reign. Well, actually, it was almost 300 years later than this that Josiah reigned. And the prophet of God now marks him out. And you'll notice he was a good king. And he reigned 30 and 1 years. And this man led in one of the five great revivals that took place during this particular period. And we'll be talking about those revivals when we get to Chronicles. They're not in Kings, but they are in Chronicles. You got it from God's viewpoint. And the revival is from God's viewpoint always. You're not able to count the number of converts. You don't need to. A great spiritual movement took place. Now, this prophet of God, he prophesies against this altar, you see. And he says that God is going to raise up a man that will destroy these. And Josiah did that. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be rent, and the ashes that are upon it shall be poured out. Now, when Jeroboam, who was there at the time of making a sacrifice to this golden calf. Notice what he did, verse 4. It came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, which had cried against the altar in Bethel, that he put forth his hand from the altar, saying, Lay hold on him. In other words, with a scepter, he could point out to the man and say, Lay hold on him. In other words, he's to be slain. And his hand, which he put forth, against him, dried up, so that he could not pull it again to him. He was paralyzed. That arm was paralyzed. Now, the altar also was rent, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Now, the king changes his tune very definitely. The king answered and said unto the man of God, Entreat now the face of the Lord thy God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored me again. And the man of God besought the Lord, and the king's hand was restored him again, became as it was before. 
Now the king said unto the man of God, Come home with me and refresh thyself, and I'll give thee a reward. The man of God said unto the king, If thou give me half thine house, I'll not go in with you, neither will I eat bread or drink water in this place. For so was it charged me by the word of the Lord, saying, Eat no bread, nor drink water, nor turn again by the same way that thou camest. So he went another way and returned not by the way that he came to Bethel. Now, this is quite remarkable. Very frankly, there was no compromise here with the evil and idolatry. I'm not going to take time out for this today, but this would be the place to say that right now, There's so much double talk and subterfuge in Christian circles, and that which is supposed to be fundamental. I have just read a statement issued by a certain seminary that claims to be fundamental. Now, you can't guess what it is, and don't attempt to ask me, because I won't tell you. But this seminary has tried to build a reputation that it's conservative. I have never read such double talk. I have never read such subterfuge. May I say that there is a superpiosity, a superintellectualism that they claim. And it's nothing in the world but a denial of the things of God. Oh, the compromise that there is today in Christian circles. Now, I don't mean that we're to become ugly and cantankerous and not speak to certain individuals or have fellowship with them. That's not the point. What I'm saying is that we need to have clear-cut statements where you stand today. And my Christian friend today, many of you are supporting organizations that you do not know whether they are sound or not, and you don't know whether they're giving out the Word of God. You ought to check into that. That's important, and God will hold you responsible for it. Oh, we're living in evil days, let me tell you. And this superpiosity, my, butter wouldn't melt in the mouths of the ones that give out statements like this. Boy, this prophet here is not even about to stay and have lunch with old King Jeroboam. Now, this man turns away, and he absolutely goes on his way, and he just well to. You think this would have changed the life of Jeroboam? It should have, but we read verse 33. After this thing, Jeroboam returned not from the evil way, but made again of the lowest of the people, priests of the high places, Whosoever would, he consecrated him, and he became one of the priests of the high places. And this thing became sin under the house of Jeroboam, even to cut it off and to destroy it from off the face of the earth. And my friend, when the church of God gets involved in these protest movements and brings in this hard rock music into the church, and today is making all kinds of compromise. It's a stench in the nostrils of Almighty God. We are living, may I say to you, in days that were like this, but the man of God always took a very definite stand, and you always knew where they stood. And you don't know where a great many folk today stand. The double talk that you hear today. I tried my best to get a seminary professor just to make the statement he was premillennial. He never has made it. He wouldn't make it. And yet the man wants to lead a prophetic congress. How tragic in a day like this to have men like that in the ministry. All right, now this prophecy against Jeroboam is to be fulfilled. God has said to him in verse 8, He rent the kingdom away from the house of David, and he gave it thee. And yet thou hast not been as my servant David, who kept my commandments, and who followed me with all his heart. Do that only, which was right in mine eyes. David becomes the standard, you see, for the kings from now on in both northern and southern kingdom. This man didn't even measure up, and God's going to set him aside, and God did. And what happened? Well, we're told that Jeroboam died, 
and the child that he was to bear, that is, his wife, why, the little child died. And then we're told, verse 18, they buried him, and all Israel mourned for him, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by the hand of his servant Ahijah the prophet. Ahijah denounced him, you know, and that the child would not live. Now we're told in verse 19, and the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he warred and how he reigned. And behold, they're written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. And the days which Jeroboam reigned were two and twenty years. He slept with his fathers, and Nadab his son reigned in his stead. Well, you'd think things would be better over there in the southern kingdom with Rehoboam. Well, we have no reason to believe it, because it was not any better. And God permitted that Shishak king of Egypt, he came up against Jerusalem, and he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord the treasures of the king's house, and even took away all shields of gold which Solomon made. And King Rehoboam made in their stead brazen shields and committed them unto the hands of the chief of the guard which kept the door of the king's house. Oh, Rehoboam, he's beginning to go down, but he's keeping up a front. When the golden shields are taken by the king of Egypt, he substitutes brazen shields. Then you have the death of Rehoboam. And we are told there was civil war. Verse 30, And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all their days. And now we have the death of Rehoboam, slept with his fathers. And there's something here we'll call attention to next time. And we're told, Abijah, his son, reigned in his stead. Now we find that after the death of Rehoboam, that his son Abijah, or Abijam, as it is here, comes to the throne. And we read in verse 1 now of chapter 15 of 1 Kings. Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, reigned Abijam over Judah. Three years reigned he in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Maacah, and she is the daughter of Abishalom. And this is something that's quite interesting, and you will find it all the way through this section. Every time a king is mentioned, why, you'll find out his mother's mentioned. And that's unusual. Generally, we're told who his father was, that he succeeded, but here the mother is given. And again, that's unusual. Now, why is that given? Well, I have a suggestion to make to you. The mother had a great deal to do in influencing the life of the boy. And my position here is, and it's my judgment, that the reason God recorded the name of the mother along with the king, he's a bad king, she's partially responsible. He's a good king, she's partially responsible. She has to accept responsibility for it. And today, I feel like we are living in a time when a great deal of condemnation and judgment is made against these kids that have become hippies and that sort of thing. And I recognize that sometimes out of a Christian home, why the trouble arises. But generally, there's a background for it. And ordinarily, these kids have a mother. Most of them do, you know. And the mother is partially responsible. You can't escape it, friend. Now, I know that this cuts very deep and very hard. We today need to recognize that mother has had an opportunity of influence on the little one. And if a little one has grown up to feel neglected, and unwanted and unloved, maybe mother ought to stop and think. And instead of trying to be president of the Missionary Society and singing in the choir and trying to do everything in the church, it might be nice to stay home some evening, take the little one up in your arms and just love him <laughs> and just let him know how much you really appreciate him. That is something that I think is being neglected in our day. The biggest problem that 
most young couples have today is finding a babysitter. May I say to you, we need, I think, today a little bit more mother-sitters that take little Willie or little Susie in their arms and spend a lot of time loving. <laughs> takes a lot of loving, friends, to bring a child up today. This is something that's very important. Now, I take time out for this because very candidly here, it will occur again and again. Every time we have a bad king, his mama's name is given to us. I think God was trying to tell us something. And if he's a good king, her name's given also. She'll get credit for that. And I just wouldn't want to be the mother of some of these rascals that we're going to find here in Scripture. I think it disturbed me a great deal to have been the mother of some of them. Somebody said, well, you can't be the mother. Of course I can't. But I'd sure hate to be. All right, now let's move on. We're told here in verse 3, now what about this man Abijam? Well, he walked in all the sins of his father, which he'd done before him. He followed his father, too. Papa's to blame also. <laughs> Papa set the example. Wasn't a very good home Abijam was brought up in, but he's a lousy, rotten, corrupt king. And father and mother are responsible to a certain degree. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. Now you see, David becomes the standard. It's a human standard. But it's also a standard that God accepted. And why did God accept it? Because of his sin? No. That was the black spot. Now God says in verse 4, Nevertheless, for David's sake did the Lord his God Give him a lamp in Jerusalem to set up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem. Now, the line of David, friends, never ended until you come to Jesus Christ. And it ended there. The line of David, you can't follow it after that. But here you can. God says, I won't let the lamp go out until the fulfillment of my covenant I made with David. That there would come one to sit on his throne that would rule the world. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's look here at David. Verse 5, what God says about him. And friends, after all, if we're going to be fair with judging God, and I think that little man is in no position to sit in judgment on God, but we do it nonetheless. You're going to judge God about his relationship with David. Let's understand what God really said about David and David's assets and his liabilities. Now, God lists them here. Verse 5, "...because David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, he turned not aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life." Now, somebody says, wait a minute, but that black spot, God's recording it, save only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. That's the black spot. Now, beside that, David obeyed God. Now, David didn't live in sin. David didn't live in sin. King of Babylon did. What David did one time, King of Babylon did every day. It was the weekend practice of the king of Egypt to do the thing David did one time. And the whole thought is expressed by our Lord in the parable of the prodigal son. Friends, the son can get in the pig pen. We need to recognize that today. God's child can get in the pig pen. But by the same token, you can say the child of God will not stay in the pig pen. Now, why won't he? The reason is obvious. He's a son of the father. He's not a pig. Pigs live in pig pens. Sons want to live in the father's house. And my friend, if you want to live in a pig pen, that's where you belong. <laughs> and that tells who you are. But if you've got in a pig pen and you have a desire in your heart and cry out to God, you want to come home, he's going to take you home. He'll receive you. Now, David did wrong, but David confessed his sin. And David obeyed God in everything else. And I think that it behooves us to be very careful about criticizing David. 
David's a great man, friend. You and I, not worthy, I think, to, well, I'm not to tie a shoestring. He's a great man of God. And he becomes now the standard, an earthly standard to be sure. Now again in verse 6, we are told this, There was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. This was a time of civil strife. It was a time when brother was fighting brother, and it weakened the kingdom, of course. Now we are told the rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? That was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. And this is it. He did nothing outstanding except evil. He was a bad king. Verse 8, And Abijam slept with his fathers. They buried him in the city of David, and Asa his son reigned in his stead. Now we've come to the first good king. And you feel like saying, Hallelujah, we've found a good king. And this is Asa. And Abijam slept with his fathers, and Asa's son reigned in his stead. Now in the twentieth year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, reigned Asa over Judah. Now you can see that we have here an overlapping of two years. That is, Asa reigned here, and during this period, Jeroboam had his last two years. Now we're told, and forty and one years reigned he in Jerusalem. And he had one of the longest reigns of any king. And his mother's name was Maacha. And isn't that interesting? Asa's a good king, and his mother's name was Maacha. And that means that she gets credit here in a very wonderful way because of this. And we're told that she was the daughter of Abishalom. These things are very important. Notice verse 11. And Asa did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did David his father. David, again, is the standard of either right or wrong, and this man measured up to David. Now, what did he do? He took away the Sodomites out of the land and removed all the idols that his fathers had made. Now, he just didn't go for the idea that we're to be soft on homosexual. Asa was opposed to him. May I say to you, any nation that has dropped to this low level as we've dropped to today, and it's not a mark of being civilized, it's a mark of gross degradation. And we are going down as a nation. God gives up any people that has a permissive society in this connection. Now, I really do sound like a square in this day, do I not? But somebody's going to have to talk out against this today. This is something that we need to recognize as sin today, and that it's as rotten and corrupt and depraved and degraded as man can become. You can't go any lower than this. When a man goes to this level, God gives him up. And our society is moving that way today. Olaza dealt with it. He's called a good king. And we need today to recognize that God hasn't changed his mind in this connection. Now we find that Asa made war against Baasha, king of Israel, all their days. It's continual civil war. Now we're told that Asa did other things. He had to appease a kingdom rising in the north, now that was becoming dominant, and that was Syria. And he sent to Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, certain of the gold and silver in order to appease him. This was to keep him from invading his kingdom. And he made a league with him, which I think could be said to be the one thing he did that was wrong. And we're told that in verse 22, Then King Asa made a proclamation throughout all Judah. None was exempted, and they took away the stones of Ramah, the timber thereof, wherewith Baasha had built it, and King Asa built with them Geba, Benjamin, and Mizpah. And this is all for protection, of course. 
Now all the rest of the acts of Azan, all his might, and all that he did, and the cities which he built, why, they are written in the book of Chronicles. And then we're told Asa slept with his father, buried with his fathers in the city of David his father, and Jehoshaphat his son reigned in his stead. And by the way, Jehoshaphat is another good king, as we shall see. Now, we come back to the son of Jeroboam, and he reigned over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. He reigned over Israel two years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin, wherewith he made Israel to sin. And we find that there was a great deal of intrigue in the northern kingdom. And we're told that Baasha, the son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar, conspired against him. And Baasha smote him at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. And then he became king. And then you would think that maybe along the line somewhere that there would be peace, but there was not. There was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all their days. This was continual civil war which depleted the energy and the resources of both of the kingdoms and made them subject to the powers that were round about them. And they were invaded again and again by Egypt in the south, by Syria, and then finally Assyria in the north. Now we find that this man Baasha reigned longer than any other king in the north up to this point. He reigned 24 years, and we're told that this man is to be put down because he did evil. And we're told that him that dieth of Baasha in the city shall the dogs eat, and him that dieth of his in the fields shall the fowls of the air eat. This was a sad period in the life of the kingdom. Now we are told that when he died, that what happened, that Elah in the twenty and sixth year of Asa king of Judah began Elah the son of Baasha to reign over Israel and Terzah two years. And then we are told that he hadn't reigned but two years till his captain, Zimri, led a rebellion against him. He conspired against him. These conspirators in the northern kingdom, no man was safe up there. And when this man got drunk, why, Zimri went in, smote him, killed him in the twentieth and seventh year of Asa, king of Judah. And so Zimri began to reign. He didn't last very long either. He lasted seven days. And then they got rid of him, by the way. And again, another rebellion, and there was conspiracy against him. And then we're told that after him, Amri, he went up to Gibbethon, all Israel with him, and they besieged Terzah. And it came to pass when Zimri saw that the city was taken, that he went into the palace of the king's house, burnt the king's house over him with fire, and died. These are dark days, as you can see, for the kingdom, and darker days are yet to come. Then we are told that not only was there this conspiracy of Amri, but he had a rival, and Tibni also claimed to be king. Then were the people of Israel divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath, to make him king, and half followed Amri. But the people that followed Amri prevailed. And then Amri put to death Tibni, and then Amri reigned. Now, he reigned over Israel, and he wrought evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he did worse than all that were before him. He exceeded the others. That's in verse 25. And now he has a son, Amri Verse 28, slept with his fathers. He was buried in Samaria, and Ahab, his son, reigned in his stead. And we're told in verse 30, and Ahab, the son of Amri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. This man, Ahab, he's the worst one of all. And he had a wife that really helped him. She was a real helpmeet in the area of evil. What he didn't think of, she thought of. 
And what she didn't think of, nobody could think of. She's a mean woman, and we're going to be talking about her next time. But God had a man there, and the right kind of a man, and it was Elijah. We're going to come now to what I believe is one of the great sections of the Word of God. And we read verse 31, "...it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him." So that he marries a woman that did evil even more than he did. And the combination of the two make probably the worst that we possibly could have. And I think that you have here two of the worst, the worst couple. I'm sure that Mr. and Ms. Haman were very bad. And we know of Ptolemy, Dionysius, and Cleopatra. They were quite a couple. And Philip I of Spain and Bloody Mary did pretty well together. And we have several couples where the wife is dominant in diabolical designs. That was Catherine de' Medici and Henry II of France. And Bartholomew Lucretia Borgia, she was another daughter of a pope and Alfonso. They did pretty well in the realm of evil. And then there's Macbeth and Lady Macbeth and Louis XV and Maria Antoinette of France and Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. These are some of the couples that stand out on the pages of history as being evil. But none can exceed Ahab and Jezebel. They head the list. This woman Jezebel, she's a daughter of a king who was also a priest, a priest of Baal. He'd murdered his brother. And it's interesting to know Jezebel means unmarried are without cohabitation. In other words, the marriage of Ahab and Jezebel was not a romance. It wasn't a love match. It was not a marriage. It was just a wedding. And apparently there had never been really a meeting of these two in a love relationship. She was a masculine woman, strong intellectual powers with a fierce passion for evil. She's strong will, a dominant personality, and had no moral sense. She was hardened into insensibility. She was unscrupulous. She's the most wicked person in history, bar none. And in the New Testament, in the message our Lord gave to the church of Thyatira, he says, I have this against you that you suffered this woman Jezebel to teach. And that is a period without natural affection, dominating and domineering woman. That's the picture we have before us. Now, how in the world did these two ever get together? Well, I think it's quite easy. I went for years to young people's conferences. And it's quite interesting that you could have in a young people's conference one boy who was a bad apple and a girl who was a bad egg, and for some strange reason, the bad apple and the bad egg would always get together and start dating together. Always happened like that. Well, these two got together. And something else happened in this period, which reveals how ominous and how critical the days were. In verse 34 of chapter 16 of First Kings, we're told, "...in his days, Hiel... The Bethelite built Jericho. He laid the foundation thereof in Abiram, his firstborn, set up the gates thereof, and his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Joshua, the son of Nun. So that at the time of the destruction of Jericho, Joshua had said, Cursed is the man that built it. It had not been built until the time of Ahab and Jezebel. And the curse that was pronounced came upon these. Now, God had to have a man there at the time for when these two are on the throne, and he had to have somebody that could stand up against them. And he had that man ready. One of the greatest men 
who walks across the page of Scripture, and a man that's yet to return to the earth to witness in the last days. Because in those days, there'll be so many that will be weak-kneed and no backbone and compromisers. God is sending Elijah back to the earth because this man never compromised. Now, he's introduced to us in a most dramatic way. Ahab and Jezebel are on the throne in the north, in the northern kingdom. And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be Juna reign these years, but according to my word. And this man, Elijah, walked into that court of Ahab and Jezebel, and he made this dramatic announcement. He says, I just want to give you the latest weather report. It's not going to rain. And it's not going to rain except by my word, and I'm not apt to say anything because I'm leaving town. And he walked out of that court just as dramatic as he walked in. I think these two were taken aback because they never dreamed anybody would speak out like that, and they found out that he had that habit of speaking out. This man now walks out. Now you get the impression that he is a rugged individual, and he is. But there's something else that should be said here about him. God had to train this man. And God has always had the method of training the man he uses by taking him to the desert. You will recall that's where he trained Moses. Well, he got Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, put him up in that land that at that time was very rugged terrain in the hill country. And we find that God used the method for Moses, putting him out on the desert. He did it for David, and he's now doing it for Elijah, did it for John the Baptist also. And Paul the Apostle was sent out into the desert of Arabia for at least two years. So this is God's method of training his man. And we find that here he's going to take this man Elijah out and teach him several things he needed to learn. Now, first of all, we read, And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This is verse 2, Get thee hence, turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Kirith, that is, before Jordan. In other words, you get as far out in the country as you can. And he went out into this desert, and there was this little brook there, and it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. Now, God used two methods of taking care of him out there. One was the natural means, that was the brook, he's to drink of it, and the supernatural means, the ravens, they were to come and feed him. Now, the brook was drying up. We're told it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up because there'd been no rain in the land. After all, Elijah pronounced that there'd be this drought, a famine would come. And here in verse 7, we're told a brook dried up. Now, here is this man out there in the wilderness, and he goes down every morning, and he noticed the brook is going down. And all he had to do was put a peg down in the water and note how much it went down one day, and then he could figure out how many days it would be before he starved to death or died of thirst. And here you have a mathematical measurement. And anybody with any common sense would know on a certain day, that would be it. And you know, this is the sin of statistics. The condition of the church is determined by statistics. You go to a church meeting, and if the offerings have been good, and they have received members, and they've increased in attendance, why, that means the church is a howling success. And that may not be it at all. I heard the story of the preacher that got up at a business meeting and said, we're going to call on the treasurer to give the report so we can know what the status quo of the church is. One of the members got up and said, Mr. Preacher, we don't know what the status quo means. What does that mean? The preacher got up and he says the status quo means the mess that we are in. And the interesting thing is that the status quo of a great many churches and organizations 
reveals the mess they're in, although the statistics may look healthy. And so he could just sit down and figure that he's going to die on a certain date. But you see, the cold figures of mathematics do not contain the spiritual fire that is there. You can't put the condition of the church in the form of a bank statement. You can't measure it on a computer and even a revival today. You don't count it by the numbers. The thing is that when Elijah went down and looked at that little brook, he learned a great spiritual lesson. And it was, my life is a dried-up brook. I'm nothing. I'm just a brook. I'm a channel through which living water can flow. And if it doesn't flow, then I'm a dried-up brook. The Lord Jesus says, Whosoever shall drink of this water will thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I give him, he'll never thirst. We sing sometime a song, Make Me a Channel of Blessing. And I think that half of the folk don't know what in the world they're talking about when they say that. Well, that means you're an empty brook. You don't have any water of life. It's only as the water of life, the Word of God, flows through you. And here, this man Elijah had to learn, God hath chosen the weak things of the world. Elijah, you're not a big, strong, rugged individual. You're no stronger and better than that dried-up brook that is there. And it's not until the water of life goes through you. It's said of Hudson Taylor that a young missionary listening to him just had to respond because Hudson Taylor insisted. He said, remember, when you come out here, you are nothing. And it's only what God can and will do through you. And this young missionary said, it's hard for me to believe that I'm just nothing. And Dr. Hudson Taylor said to him, said, you're nothing. Take it by faith, because it's true. You and I are a dried up brook. And then God transferred him. The word of the Lord came unto him. That's verse 8. Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. And he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman was there gathering of sticks. And he called to her and said, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to fetch it, he called her and said, Bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thine hand. She said, As the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel, and a little oil in a cruise, and behold, I'm gathering two sticks, that I may go in and dress it for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah told her, said, Well, you go in and fix it. <laughs> You're not going to die. And you know that Elijah and that woman stuck their head down in that empty flower barrel every day and sang the doxology. And God sustained them out of an empty flower barrel. Listen to verse 14. For thus saith the Lord God Israel, A barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail, until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. And so they just sang the doxology every day. And that barrel was as fertile as the plains of Canada and the cornfields of Iowa. And that's another great lesson, one you and I need to learn. We're an empty flower barrel. I hear so much today about consecration and give you talents to the Lord. My friend, you and I haven't anything to offer God. There was a wedding in Cana, Galilee. What was the most important thing in a wedding? The bride's dress? Not in this. There was some empty water crocks there. The Lord filled them with water. And then he was able to serve the guests a delicious refreshment. My friend, may I say to you, you and I are an empty flower barrel, an empty water crock. It's not until the water of life and the bread of life has been put in us. Believe me, today we are having spiritual floor shows in our churches and we have a church and religious nightclub and so many, and there's no more spiritual life than there's in a Rose Bowl game in Pasadena. There's more enthusiasm in a larger crowd, and some of these church meetings are pretty sad and silly, if you ask me. We're an empty flower barrel, friends, 
And then there's something else there. Remember, the widow's son died. And it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick, and his sickness was so sore that there's no breath left in him. He died. And what did Elijah do? He took the body and made contact with that body. And he did it three times. There's a great principle there, and that's the principle of resurrection. Verse 19, he said unto her, Give me thy son. He took him out of her bosom, carried him up to a loft where he abode, laid him on his own bed, and he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourned by slaying her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times, cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. Now, here you have a resurrection. It's a great principle. Three times he did it. And it's contact with life. And friends, today Christianity is contact with Jesus Christ. And if it's not that, it's as dead as a dodo bird. You and I need to recognize that this is one of the great miracles of Scripture. The soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. And you and I are dead body. We're lost sinners, dead in trespasses and sin. And if we then be crucified with Christ, and we can say, I'm crucified with Christ, 1,900 years ago he died, and we died with him. Now we're joined to the living Christ today. And my friend, if we're not joined to him, we're nothing. Now Elijah is to learn a great lesson. Elijah is a dried-up brook. He's an empty flower barrel. He's a dead body, but God can use it when we recognize that. Luther put it like this, that God creates out of nothing. Until a man recognizes he's nothing, God can do nothing with him. That's the problem with the great men of today. We're too strong. We've got too much ability. God can't use us.